back to the bin. Hey everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Back to the Bins, which is of course my way of getting around saying welcome back to Back to the Bins, blah blah blah, I make this joke all the time. This is episode 92 of the show, if our math is correct, and this episode we are sans Scott Gardner, but you have me, Michael Bailey, and my good buddy Paul Spataro. Hello, we finally got rid of Scott. Well, it took long enough, and I I, I applaud your uh, your deviousness and <laughs> and uh, just saying no, we can't record on that day. <laughs> you know, maybe we'll do an episode by ourselves, and really, it was just one. You know, we just just wanted to hang out by ourselves. Well, you know, he's always horning in. <laughs> it's not like he brought us both onto the show, and that we owe him a lot for that. So. <laughs> <laughs> But today we are not doing an indie uh, book, as I think you and Scott didn't do one either. That's correct. Uh, but we do have a Marvel and a DC, and who's going first? Uh, your call. What would you rather? Um, I'll go ahead and go first. We'll start with a DC, and we are traveling back in time to the year 1994. I was in college around the time this book came out. Uh cover date October 1994 we have Robin number 0 the beginning of tomorrow did you uh, did you read zero hour when it came out yes i did uh, that was I, that was after i returned to comic buying see i you know i i, I don't know a whole lot about your 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 comic book history so uh, i didn't know what you were uh, you know if you were more of a marvel guy or a dc guy or I'll, I'll give you the, the Reader's Digest version. I started in the early 70s. I was much more of a Marvel guy. Uh, I took a few years before I started getting DC at all. And I went into the mid-80s, just about to crisis or so. And then I stopped. And I got pulled back in by the death of Superman. Yeah, good man. <laughs> so that's, that's like the that quick story. version. <laughs> I like that story, or so, you know, the internet would have everyone believe. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, hear you're, yeah, I hear you like that one. I've little heard bit, some little rumors bit. to that effect. No, when, the, when this book came out, uh, Robin Number Zero, this was actually when I started reading um, a larger number of DC books than I was before. I had always, you know, been, I'd been followed the, the Superman titles for about seven years by this point. And I, you know, I was out of high school, I was going into college, I had some disposable income that I really didn't have, but I convinced myself that I had. So right around zero hour, I dipped my toe into the Batman titles, into Flash and Green Lantern. And this wasn't my first issue of Robin, but it was, uh, it was one of the first, and... This is one of the reasons why I fell in love with Tim Drake as a character. So we are talking about story title Brothers in Arms, which is written by Chuck Dixon, pencils by Tom Grummet, inks by Ray Kreising. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Colors by Adrian Roy, letters by Albert Guzman, Lifeline, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, and editor Denny O'Neill. 
This issue begins with Harvey Dent being interviewed at Arkham Asylum by two people behind, uh, behind appropriately enough, two-way glass. Harvey insists on being called Two-Face and not Harvey, and for some reason, every time I say Harvey, I keep flashing back to uh, the movie American Splendor. Harvey Chico? Yeah, where the, one, where the one guy that he worked with was like, Harvey? So, I'm weird like that. Um... The people interviewing him wish to talk about Batman and ask why Two-Face hates the Dark Knight so much. Two-Face counters that he doesn't hate the Batman, but he will talk about the one that he does hate. Cut to Robin, the Tim Drake model, and Nightwing finding a bunch of guys who are up to no good, causing a little trouble in the neighborhood. As they wait for the right time to strike, Tim asks Dick why Batman created Robin in the first place. We are treated to a neat retelling of Dick's origin, and Dick mentions that for a long time, it was all fun and games, man. Fun and games! Tim asks when all of that changed, and Dick begins telling the story of a time when Two-Face had Batman and the then-current Gotham DA in nooses, and is ranting about how all the city had to do was pay him $2 million, and blah, 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 and we learn that he is ranting to Dick as Robin. Two-Face is telling the same story, curls up in a fetal position as he once again insists that he is not Harvey Dent. At the same time, the people behind the glass ask Two-Face what happened next. Tim asks Dick the same question, and Dick wants to talk about it later. Tim then asks about Jason Todd, and we are treated to his origin being retold, complete with him boosting the Batmobile's tires, him being a loose cannon, and then him being beaten near to death with a crowbar and blown up real good. Dick then brings the conversation around to Tim's origin and reminds him that Two-Face was his baptism of fire as well. Tim reminds us how he discovered Batman was Bruce Wayne and wanted to get the band back together, so to speak, with Robin and Batman and ended up putting on the Robin costume and helping Batman and Nightwing defeat Two-Face. Two-Face is telling the same story, and the people behind the glass wonder if this had to do with the district attorney's death. Two-Face yells no, that that was actually another misadventure, another failure, and ultimately another story. He just didn't give them the context that he had changed the subject. Cut back to Dick and Tim, and we get the Paul Harvey patented rest of the story. Good day. Uh, About the death of Tim's mom and the long training period, and finally Tim becoming Robin. Tim still wants to know about the Two-Face thing, and Dick finally tells him as Two-Face relates the same story. Apparently, Dick, as Robin, tried to save the lives of both the DA and Batman by coercing Two-Face into flipping the coin. Two-Face does, and the DA's side comes up, so Two-Face pulls his lever. Dick throws a batarang and hits the rope, but didn't know that it was a two-way death trap because the DA fell into the river and drowned because he couldn't get free. Two-Face decides to up the ante by savagely beating Robin in front of him. As Two-Face relates the story, this was a double-cross and not just an error in judgment, because Batman has gotten free and presumably, even though it is not shown, beats the ever-loving piss out of Two-Face and his men, because Two-Face really assaults Robin. Two-Face blames the whole thing on Robin and calls out the people questioning him, but they have apparently disappeared, mysteriously. Tim and Dick have a it-was-my-fault-it-wasn't-your-fault it conversation before hearing that the would-be safecrackers are done and jump in to bust some criminal heads. Back at the Batcave, Bruce explains that while the war goes on, he kind of needs a vacation after the whole having his back broken, 
having it mended, Jean-Paul Valley being a whack job thing. He adds that he can't leave Gotham without a Batman, but he also can't make the same mistake he did with Jean-Paul. Tim isn't worried because this time his choice is just right. Dick tells Bruce that he can't replace him before slipping on the cowl of the Batman, but says that it's going to be a wild ride standing in for him. And that is the beginning of the prodigal storyline that would run through the Batman titles for the next uh, next couple of months. I love this comic. <laughs> it is so awesome. <laughs> it is a good one. I never read this one before. Really? Had you read much Robin at all? Not a lot. I have this. It's not that I didn't have it, but for some reason I never got around to reading it. The, um... It's kind but of it funny. is a good story. I'm glad you you picked this one. Oh, definitely. One, you've got the Chuck Dixon writing, and Chuck Dixon is just an excellent, excellent writer. Um, it's kind of funny. I always say that he's a great Batman character, but my favorite Batman-related books that Dixon wrote were Robin and Nightwing. Mm. <laughs> so he did well, a good it's detective run. Still the, the Batman family, though. Um, yeah, and it's just, you have that, <laughs> you have the Tom Grummet art. And you wouldn't have Tom Grummet on this title for much longer because eventually eventually Micro Ringo takes over as artist. And that was a good good run uh, artistically. But mm-hmm. Dixon did not create Tim Drake. That was Marv Wolfman uh, during the uh, Lonely Place of Dying storyline, which is another excellent story. Uh, Tom Grummet was actually drawing New Titans at the time, so... Grummet had a, had a hand in, in Tim's creation. Um, but Chuck Dixon really defined the character through the several, the three miniseries and then this ongoing series. And what I love about this issue is, one, we have a, a, a dual storytelling method going on, and it's a two-faced story. So it's subtle, but it's there. Yes, uh, I, I, I picked that up as well, and I, I like that a lot. I mean, it, it, it's yes. Is it is it realistic that both Tim and Two Face would be talking about this at the same time? No, but as a narrative tool, it works quite well because you're getting the same story from two different perspectives. But even though the whole "you're just not going to let this go" thing was kind of repeated a lot by Dick when Tim kept bringing it up, you know. If you're going to have the zero issues, uh, for those of you that don't know, were the uh, a month at, the month after Zero Hour ended, DC had zero issues for all of their mainstream titles, and it was either a chance to introduce a new title, and like in the case of Starman, which was an excellent series, uh, to kind of introduce a newish origin, or to just establish what's going on with the characters and retell their origins for the audience that has come in because of Zero Hour. Um, Chuck Dixon didn't do a whole lot to change any of the Robin's origins. And he does a great job of weaving the three origins in the story in in a somewhat organic form. Also, we get an untold tale of those days. And kind of like the end of innocence for, for, um, for Dick Grayson, which had been hinted at. Uh, in the Robin title, if I'm if I'm remembering this right, it had been hinted at that, that there was this horrible thing that happened with with Two Face, and this was the ultimate revelation of that. And I got to tell you that the, the idea that at some point in their early career, Two Face beats Robin 
savagely right in front of Batman, that's a horrific thought. That's like, mm-hmm. wow, that's not fun and games, Burt Ward, Adam West, you know, running around. And he doesn't show much of it, but I kind of would have liked to have seen more of Batman kind of getting his get back with it because the one panel that they do show is him leaping at them and in the shadowing you can see that his mouth is open so you just got to get the sense that batman has just checked out and he's just <laughs> going on pure ins- and he's like yelling <laughs> and the, the way they have his cape fla- flailing behind him and everything it, it really does create this manic energy yeah i mean it's just and and grummet again is such an excellent artist so good with all of these characters just you you don't need to know uh you don't need to see the 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 beat down to know that it was pretty much a bad day for two-face and his cronies because he's he's not having any of this and it's just i mean you (laughs) it looks like he's almost still kind of tied up when he attacks them but it's just just a humiliating defeat for for uh, Dick and Dick blames himself for the death of the district attorney. Uh, I'm kind of glad he lost the mullet by this point. Well, but he's I, still got the ponytail, which yeah, I, I I don't need that. You don't you don't like Dick Grayson with the ponytail? No, nah, I'm not a fan. I don't know. I guess you know after being Robin and going out on his own, that seems like kind of a little rebellion thing. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna keep my hair long. Um, have you ever read Prodigal, the story that follows? No, this? I haven't, but I think I may need to now. It's it's Dick Grayson as Batman before, you know, Frank, I um, mean, you know, Grant Morrison and Judd Winnick and all them decided to do it. And it was a uh, it was more of why he can stand in for Bruce, but ultimately can't be Bruce, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, no, it does, actually. And the Robin issues were my favorite, but the, the just the whole dynamic of Tim Drake as Robin and Dick Grayson as Batman while, you know, trying to figure everything out. And it's kind of Dick realizing where he fits into the whole universe. And ultimately, this kind of led into, a couple years later, him getting his own series, which was excellent. Uh, again, if you... If you want some really good, solidly characterized stories that deal with more about the people, but still have a lot of good action and, and you know some pretty solid plots and villains, read any of Chuck Dixon's series from the 90s. Because Robin was excellent, Nightwing was excellent, he was writing my favorite Batman title at the time, which was Detective. Because Doug Mensch was writing Batman... And it was more supernatural stories. Mm-hmm. And Alan Grant was doing kind of like the more psychologically driven Batman stories over in Shadow of the Bat. But Detective was a detective book. It focused on Batman solving cases. And Renee Montoya and Harvey Bullock were leading supporting characters in it. So I, I, just... I've always kind of been more compelled to go for these stories you know, where Batman was the detective. I, you know, I like that better than the Batman. You know, I like Batman as Sherlock Holmes as opposed to Batman as, you know, MacGyver. <laughs> you know, it's it's really funny. One of the my my good buddy, the irredeemable Shag. The very first time we met was at a panel at Dragon Con, and I was actually on the panel because I had won a comic book trivia contest the previous year. Mm-hmm. 
and um, at, the panel was basically the fanboys panel, where we, where it was just a bunch of comic fans sitting up there talking with other comic fans, and it was a lot of fun. But it, it, by the end, we had kind of run out of things to talk about, so everyone whipped out the whole who would win in a fight type thing. And all of this is actually on video somewhere. Um, my wife taped them because it was my first being on a panel moment. And, um, you know, everyone was talking about Batman and what a great fighter he was. And Shag said something that kind of stopped me. He goes, he's not supposed to be the ultimate spider. He's supposed to be the ultimate, uh, the ultimate fighter. He's supposed to be the ultimate detective. And I'm like, you know, they've really gone away from that, haven't they? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, is, is, it, is it a sad reflection on me that I remember this story from when you told it on Views? No, it just meant that you <laughs> listened to Views, <laughs> which I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was pretty early, pretty early on in your run, I think, but you, you gave your background, kind of, and I remember you going through that, how you won the trivia contest, and I think at the time you were getting ready to go back for a, a, a replay. Um, I, I, I was 2006, 2007. If it was around the time of me doing Views, I was... All, probably losing at the Marvel Jeopardy, which I did every year. So, but <laughs> mm. just a just a fun start to Shag and I's relationship, though, where he kept telling me I was wrong, and uh, that really hasn't changed all that much. So, <laughs> that's good. well, I got to say that the Shag episodes that you've done have always been entertaining. You guys work well together. And then he went off and found himself a new friend and does this Aquaman Firestorm thing. And then they recently spun off into a Who's Who in the DC Universe podcast. That, which that actually sounds promising. I recommend wholeheartedly the first episode. They are going through each issue of Who's Who a character at a time. Oh, that's pretty cool. So, I haven't I haven't heard any of that yet. Yeah, I'll um, I'll be sure to if I post this episode to include links and all that stuff. But uh, no, just. Again, if if you if y'all have never read any of the Chuck Dixon Batman work, I, I wholeheartedly suggest it. Um, thankfully, uh, I'm I'm hoping that some of this stuff is going to get traded because they're they're now putting everything out into trade paperback, uh, including the complete Nightfall, Night Quest, and Night's End. Um, where you, at the end of Night's End, especially, you'll get some early issues of Robin. So uh, yeah, check these out definitely, and I'm glad uh, I'm glad you liked it, Paul. Uh, oh, very I was much. Really, really curious to see what you would say about it. And just well, the two things that uh, jump out at me right now is, uh, you know, you you hear Harvey and you think of American Splendor. Uh, I hear Harvey and I think of the Honeymooners. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm guessing that you that you would like the Honeymooners and that you'd be familiar with the episode I'm talking about. Um, I have never really watched it, but oh no! I, I mean, I, I like every once in a while on Nick at Night, and I enjoyed it. It's just not one of those things that I got into. Well, basically, Ralph Cramden uh, and his buddy Norton are at a pool hall, and they get into a dispute over uh, which table they're going to use with this very small guy. <laughs> and uh, the guy says, "Well, you know, me and my friend Harvey were playing here," and they start making fun of the name Harvey. And then the guy Harvey comes over and he's, you know, like this giant of a man. And he's like, you know, so, so then, you know, the, the little guy says, you know, he was making fun of you. He said, Harvey's a funny name. Jackie Gleason turns around and says, so, Harvey's a lovely name. You know, so that's, that's what I think of when I hear Harvey. I really need to watch more Honeymooners because Jackie Gleason was a comic genius. And 
the only thing I'm really familiar with him in was the movie he did with Tom Hanks in the 80s. Oh, uh... Nothing in Common. That's it, yes. Which is an and, excellent uh, film. And and my my story for that movie is, if you remember, there's a scene in there where I think it was Tom Hanks actually goes, like he's got to get away and he goes to a local bar and there's like a basketball court in the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's in Chicago. And around the time that that movie came out, a couple of friends of mine and I took a trip to Chicago to see the Mets play at Wrigley Field. And we went into a local bar to have a couple of drinks. And we, it was that particular bar. <laughs> Did you shoot some hoops? Uh, no, but we met some girls. At the time, I was single, and that was nice. Well, yeah. I mean, going to a town, catching a ball. I mean, I'm not a big sports guy, but I can understand the the coolness of going and catching a game so yeah it was it was you know that for a very short period of time that was uh, a goal was to go see all the different baseball stadiums and i probably saw about 10 different stadiums which you know it was, it was a fun excuse to go to different places well i've long been of the opinion that um if you melt away any kind of fan if you melt away the particulars i don't care if it's a sports fan i don't care if it's a comic fan D&D, whatever. You basically have the same personality traits in all of them. It's just what mm-hmm. they've chosen to get into. And uh, I think by my extremely large non-sports card trading card collection, that there is a very frustrated baseball card collector <laughs> fighting. Well, see, see, and then the big sports fans who are baseball card collectors, I think inside them there's a geek waiting to to come out. Well, with the with the memorizing of the stats and the you know you got uniforms, you got larger than life figures, you know there's kind of a communal thing with it of going to a game because I gotta I gotta admit I, I don't like watching baseball on television, but I have gone to a couple games, uh, especially some double A games, and it's kind of a fun experience when you're there at the at the park. Uh, I I definitely think so. Sitting at home on a Saturday or Sunday or Monday or God, there's two seasons in the year, baseball and winter. So <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I actually enjoy watching it on TV. I have a, I actually have a TV line out into the backyard so I could sit, you know, on the nice summer afternoons and watch <laughs> baseball in the backyard. Well, you're lucky cause you're, uh, you're from New York. So you, you know, you either have the, the Mets or the Yankees, but you guys really stand behind your teams once you have chosen an affiliation. I live in, in Atlanta, near Atlanta, and this is the most fair-weather sports town ever. If they're winning, we love them. If they're not winning, they're all a bunch of losers. <laughs> There's well, no standing behind them. I mean, it's it's a fine line, though, because uh, I still go to... I'm a Mets fan, and I'm actually a Yankee hater, and you know, the Yankee <laughs> fans, Yankee fans will... You know, they could be upset with me for that. But, uh, you know, I go to I make a point. I'm at City Field a couple of times every year. Uh, but certainly if they were winning, I'd be there more often. Or when they're winning, I'm there more often. But, the, you're, you know, the, but even if the, they're having a losing streak, you're still going to support your team. And I, yeah, I, I stick by them and I still go to a couple of games, you know, whether, whether they're winning or losing. But when they're winning, I go to more. And the other thing I hate about baseball is getting stuck in on I-85, I-75 and Turner Field traffic. So, 
can get well, then quite the nice one for me, then the, the real nice one. And I don't go to too many, but I actually only live, I guess, maybe a mile and a half from the Nassau Coliseum. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> so if I want to go if I want to go to a hockey game, you know, you can't have a much more convenient commute than that. Yeah, well, it's just it's walking almost. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You, you know, you could walk it if it wasn't pitch black. And usually I, when I go, I usually take one of my kids. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> You don't want to make them walk the entire because eventually they're going to be sitting on your shoulders. <laughs> Not so. at this point. I mean, my son's fourteen, so oh. uh, would I would colla- I would collapse. <laughs> and, and my and my my daughter's twelve, and she's you know like the tallest one in the class. So <laughs> neither one of them is on my shoulders anymore. Uh, they're cute kids, though, and I only have your Skype picture to judge that by. But <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Thank it's nice, you. Uh, it's 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 a nice picture of the family wearing uh, jets. Yeah, that's that was during a Jets playoff game. So Tom no DJ. No wonder you're friends that. with Thomas DJ. <laughs> there you go. That Tom man loves the Jets more than one. life itself. Yeah, Tom's. Tom, I gotta I gotta give him. He's a bigger fan than I am. I'm <laughs> I'm a big fan, but but Tom blows me away. Well, uh, when I paid attention to football, I was a Giants guy. Uh, when I was like well, a kid. Un- unlike baseball, where I'm a Mets fan and a Yankee hater, uh, football isn't mutually exclusive because I'm a Jets fan, but I like the Giants. I rooted for them in the Super Bowl, and I was happy to see them win. Yeah, so was I because I, I remember the ninety ninety one season. Uh, my dad actually took me to uh, the first time they played the Eagles that year at Meadowlands, and that mm-hmm. was a lot of fun. Um, and it was really funny because halfway through the game, I mean, I am surrounded by blue. Uh, so we're we're definitely in the giant section of the stands, and this one Eagles fan is mouthing off in the corner. That just amused the crap out of me. Well, I, I just don't get that. I don't get going into enemy territory and mouthing yeah. off. Yeah, it's, it's, especially in New York. I mean... Uh, anywhere, seriously, anywhere. I mean, you, you heard the story about the, uh, you know, in L.A., some Dodger fans, you know, viciously beat up some guy. And there's never any justification for that. No, but not I at all. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the guy wasn't taunting them a little bit to start it off. Well, yeah. I mean, people get very passionate about their teams. So, oh, It's funny. I, I was at a Mets game, I don't know, two or three years ago. Me and one of my buddies were you know, online waiting to get a beer and the Mets were playing the Phillies and the Phillies were clobbering them. Uh, and it was a year, you know, the Mets weren't really contending and the Phillies were going to be in the playoffs. I think they might've even won the world series that year. Uh, but you know, we're waiting online and some guy who had a couple too many to drink there, you know, we were in a section where a bunch of people had bust in from Philly uh-huh. and, and this guy looks at me and my buddy and he says, the Mets suck. And he, you know, obviously trying to get a reaction out of us. And my buddy just turns to him and he says, you know, I got to admit right now they do. And and it, it like took the guy off his game so much that by the time we got to the front of the line, he bought us our beers. <laughs> uh, Philly fans, because I grew up near Allentown. You want to talk about some hardcore fans. Good oh, yeah. God in heaven, they support every freaking team in their city. <laughs> Well, I used to, I used to like going once in a while to Veterans Stadium to to see a game. I didn't think that was a bad stadium. People used to badmouth that all the time, and I actually found it to be a clean, comfortable stadium where, you know, anywhere that I had seats, I could see the game fine. 
I, I didn't really see what the complaints were. Well, you know, people are going to complain. I mean, it's just... But that was the fun thing around that time period was one of the guys my dad worked with was a big Eagles fan, so anytime the Giants won, I would just call him up <laughs> Monday evening and give him a little crap about it. Well, there's nothing quite like taunting. <laughs> and that man loved the Eagles. See, again, and that's why it was so weird moving to Atlanta because, you know, I came from, you know, the Allentown area, which was so close to, you know, was two hours from Philly. We were like, we were like the middle ground between Philly and New York City, now that I think about it, which is probably why I grew up with channels from both Philly and New York City, because right. I have many fond memories of WPIX. Eleven Alive. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Getting to watch, and and the whatever the Fox station eventually became, and Sunday mornings, Steam Pipe Alley. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm a little too old for Steam Pipe Alley. It was a weird show. Was that uh, Mario Cantone? Mario Cantone, who apparently was kind of misled about what he was hosting. Because he thought it was going to be more of an older show. We, uh... One of my friends from work, his wife is very big into, you know, she likes to go see different shows on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And they ordered tickets for his one-man show on Broadway, which is uh, very... uh, not kid friendly, let's just say. Yeah. Uh, and and they had they were going with another couple, and the other couple backed out. So my wife and I ended up going to see him on Broadway, and it was very funny. But like I said, far from kid friendly. Yeah, he uh, that that's just not how he rolled. So it was very weird for him to uh, to have to, to be on that show. But it's just one of those things that you know, being Catholic, we went to mass every Sunday, so. Unless we went Saturday night because we didn't feel like getting up early on Sunday, which is a great thing about being a Catholic, in my opinion, is mm-hmm. that you have options. Um, and <laughs> just waiting to go to church, and there would be this bizarre show on Channel Nine, which uh, my main memory of uh, to bring it back to comics was the several Thanksgiving that Jack Larson hosted a Adventures of Superman marathon. Uh, which was really cool to just sit down, especially since I had just gotten into Superman at that time in the comics. And that was my first real exposure to the George Reeves series. And it was just like, you know, any I live anywhere else in the country. I'm not seeing this. So <laughs> I felt I, I felt very blessed as a TV. I watcher. grew up with that show that that was since I was very small. That was in syndication. And I, I remember, you know, Superman and the Mole Men. You know, periodically. Well, you probably ran home and watched Batman and Superman and on WPIX when you were a kid. Yeah, that's you know that was uh, you know I, I don't Superman would be one and they would show two Batmans you know like from four to five I think it was. Well, usually because they would show the two parts of the mm-hmm. uh, cliffhanger. Yeah, those were my early memories. See, these are all conversations we would never have with Scott here. Well, certainly the sports one we wouldn't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I wonder how he's going to react to it. It's probably going to make his head explode. Yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> but well, just, so- uh, just a final thought on, on the Robin book before we go over to my issue. Uh, okay. I agree with everything you said about the artwork. Uh, when I first opened up the book and I started looking at it, it almost looked a little too simplistic to me until okay. I started looking at it closer and really what it is, it's, it's an economy of lines. It's not, it's not simplistic. It's just not heavily darkened. 
as far as the line work goes. Uh, some of the coloring becomes dark, but you know, there's there's just so much being conveyed in each shot that uh, it, it almost reminds me of like the way people critique uh, Dave Gibbons' Watchmen work. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like I said, you you could just read so much in every panel, which I, I just love that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, Grummet has one of those deceptively simple styles. It's it's kind of like Mike Parabek, uh in a lot of ways because Parabek, you know, drew mainly the Batman Adventures line, you know, mm-hmm. the, the stuff based on the various animated series. But you look at his storytelling and what he can convey on a page. It's just amazing. And Grummet, for me, I, fe- I fell in love with Grummet when he started on Superman. And Grummet was very much, to me, um, a, you know, more so than Carrie Gamill, I would say. Like, wow, now we have a Byrne-type artist on Superman again, which was important to me because Byrne is why I started reading Superman in the first place. And I just grew to love Grummet drawing that character. So going from from Superman to Superboy and Robin, and I, I haven't really read his, uh, I read most of his Titan stuff as well. It's so clean <coughs> that, me. like you said, it, you know, you first look at it, you're like, wow, this is this. There's really isn't too much to it. And then you just look that you can take the dialogue off the page, and you know everything that's going on there, unless it's the page with like all the Batman villains uh, or the Robin villains which is just kind of a pinup shot, but is important in terms of just showing where Tim has been and how much he's grown as, as Robin. So, yeah, but I, I agree with you. I think it. if, if this didn't have any dialogue at all, you could still follow this story. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Definitely. So what do you got? I'm, you said you were going back in time. I'm going way back in time. I'm going to silver surfer number 18, which is from September of 1970. It's got a 15, 15 cents price tag on it. And uh, the cover shows the surfer basically facing the reader. He's being blasted from behind by Black Bolt, and he's falling off his board. I was trying to figure out who drew this, and I was thinking maybe it was somebody else inking over Kirby, but uh, I looked it up, and it's Frank Giacoa, and it's apparently inked by Herb Trimpey. That is an interesting combination. I'm looking at it right now, and it's just like, wow. And is it me, or does he have a package? <laughs> I think he does. But those are Kirby-like lines there. Oh, very. Oh, it's a it's a it's a Kirby-esque cover to be sure. Yeah. So I, I at first thought it was a Kirby, but apparently not. Uh, the interior art is by Kirby, and it's inked by Trimpy. The script is by Stan Lee, and letters are by Stan Rosen. Uh, and there's no credit for coloring on it. Uh, we open to a scene of the surfer being attacked by a group of evil inhumans. Uh, the evil inhumans are Aero, Leonis, and Stellior. Uh, Stellior has got a centaur's, bo- a centaur's body, uh, which he emphasizes by wearing a Roman-type armor on his upper body. Uh, they're followers of Maximus the Mad, Black Bolt's evil and insane brother. The notes tell tell us that we're following uh, a battle with S.H.I.E.L.D. in the last issue, and that the Surfer has now returned to Earth, where he's finding dangers more deadly than those he had escaped. The Surfer states that he can outfly his pursuers, but chooses to remain to learn more. He concludes that he has encountered the Inhumans and decides to test their abilities. Now, I'm not sure exactly how he figures out that these are the Inhumans, other than that they're 
people with strange powers, and uh, that doesn't seem to be that unique on the Marvel Earth, so I'm really not sure how he comes to that conclusion. Yeah, Arrow grabs him. I'm sorry? I said, ah, he's the surfer. Yeah, he uses power cosmic to figure it out. Exactly. So Arrow, who's a flying inhuman, grabs him off the board and throws him, where Stalior has a huge ball on a chain that he hits him with. While he's on the ground, he's attacked by Leonis, who's a lion, like a half-lion, half-man guy. Uh, the surfer evades his claws and quickly defeats him. And then we get Timberius, who's half-man and half-tree. Kind of looks like Groot, only he has moss instead of hair. Yep. Uh, and he commands some roots to trap the board. He then has the trees in the area shoot their branches at the surfer like li- living lethal spears but the surfer uses his power cosmic to destroy them. He then goes on the offensive and blasts rays towards them, which send them racing away. Interesting, we see that Leonis is actually riding on Stalior's back like a horse. Uh, The surfer retrieves his board, stating that he senses he's been fighting underlings and decides that he's going to remain until he finds their leader. We then join the the, the evil inhumans as they meet up with Maximus, who's traveling in a regal air yacht. They say that they did what they were told, but that they could not subdue the surfer. And Maximus responds that it doesn't matter because he merely wished to anger the surfer enough to serve his purposes. He states that there's no way for the surfer to know that there are actually two different groups of inhumans and that when he finds Black Bolt's group, he'll he'll attack them and they'll destroy each other, leaving Maximus as the victor. Seconds later, as predicted by Maximus, the surfer nears Adelon, the home of the inhumans. A sentry sounds an alarm, and Black Bolt takes to the sky. He signals for the surfer to land, and the surfer says, or concludes, that uh, he has the look of one who was born to command, and that since he approached him peacefully, he'll obey his request. However, as he starts to land, Medusa snares him with her hair, and Karnak uses his inhuman karate to break a large stone piece, which he directs towards the surfer. Triton, or, and that, that actually knocks him out. Triton asks why they attacked, and Medusa says that they sought to protect the realm. Triton carries the unconscious surfer to Black Bolt, who is angry with their actions. Medusa explains that they feared that the surfer was acting, uh, attacking on behalf of Maximus. And Gorgon enters the room, stating that Maximus's flagship has been spotted. While they discuss Ma- Maximus's plans, the surfer awakens and attacks Triton. The other members of the royal family approach to aid Triton, and Medusa grabs him with her hair, but he quickly frees himself. Gorgon stamps on the ground, causing a seismic tremor to flip the surfer, and they all pile on. Medusa calls out that Maximus has breached the defenses and that Black Bolt is heading to confront him on his own. Is that Boo I hear? Yeah, sorry. Um, That's all right. Doing a couple different things at once. That's okay. We go back to the room where they were all fighting, and... The Surfer, Triton, Karnak, and Medusa are all shooting some sort of... Excuse me, I got it backwards there. We go to the room where they were fighting the Surfer, and Triton, Karnak, and Medusa are all shooting some sort of guns towards Maximus's people. The Surfer is sickened by the level of war and hostility and calls for his board. It doesn't come to him, and he searches for it and finds Lockjaw, the Inhumans version of Boo, chewing on it and holding it in place. He grabs it, and he's unable to pry it free from Lockjaw's mouth. He doesn't want to hurt the animal, so he tries different types of shock blasts around the animal instead of actually shocking the dog himself. 
he he has to, he finally gets the dog free without uh, excuse me gets the board free without harming the dog. So it's nice that the uh, surfers kind of got a uh, nice humane sensibility there. Mm-hmm. We rejoin the armed humans who see the surfer and shoot at him, thinking he intends to join up with Maximus. Maximus's ship is struck and damaged, and he flees the battle. The surfer surveys the damage, concluding that humans and inhumans are born to battle and violence. Some generic inhumans then shoot at the surfer and direct him to surrender or die. The surfer quickly dispatches them, and he's confronted by Blackbolt. The surfer quickly flies away, saying to himself that he's displayed restraint long enough and that he's tried to practice reason, but has only had hatred return to him. The book ends with a full-page close-up of the surfer's face, where he's declaring that he's no longer, gonna resi- no longer going to resist the madness, and that mankind should beware, because from this time forth, the surfer will be the deadliest one of all. The issue ends with a box at the bottom, declaring that the next issue will feature the savagely sensational new silver surfer. And... The issue was the series was canceled after that. We never got the next issue. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was very amusing when I got to the to the end of the issue. It's like, oh, really? Yeah. Is the next time this guy shows up? Is it that? Uh, is it that John Byrne? No, I mean, I mean, he shows up in other I appearances mean, because he was in the Defenders. Yeah, uh, he he actually was in that epic story. Or is it- I. I I was thinking more of like his own title, like a Silver Surfer book. Yeah, the next title he has is the is the one issue burn issue, and then he comes out with the series in the I guess late eighties mm-hmm. by Steve Englehart and um, I forget who did the artwork in that one. It is that Ron? Kind of interesting. Is that Ron Lim? Ron Lim eventually came on. I think Marshall Rogers started out, or am oh. I thinking of his detective run? I'm going to stop talking before I make a make a grave error in in factual stuff. So, okay. Well, now I picked up this issue and the entire Surfer run, the 18 issue run, in the mid 70s. And at that time, it was actually kind of it was it was worth more than other issues from the same time period would be worth. Uh, you know, as far as value went. They would, you know, generally the older you got, the more valuable they would be as far as trying to get them at conventions or at comic stores. But the certain books that had increased value over their age uh, were basically like Neil Adams runs on books, the Surfer run, uh, and then just, you know, introductions of special characters, that kind of stuff. Uh, But for whatever reason, the, the Surfer even though the book had been canceled, it was never viewed by the public as having been canceled for a lack of quality. It was just a lack of sales. Uh So I remember I had gotten those issues, and then me and my buddies, who we were talking about earlier, we went to a convention. I don't remember if it was a creation convention or uh, an actual Marvel convention, but Stan Lee was the guest of honor. And after he addressed the crowd and spoke before the crowd at at a panel-type show, uh, he came out and he, you know, people formed a line and he would sign the autographs. Uh, and each person that came up, he was incredibly accommodating. You know, everybody would come up and he'd talk to them for a couple of moments and he was just like the nicest guy. And for whatever reason, at whatever age I was, probably about 13 or 14 years old, when I got up to him, I asked him why they never finished this story. Uh, and I said, you know, couldn't, couldn't you just write an end to the story now? Cause I don't know what happened. 
and and as stupid of a question as that may have been, he treated it like it was such a serious topic. And I don't remember what answer he gave me, but he it was like a very thought out, reasoned answer that made me feel like it was an important question. Which I, I when my son and I met Stanley this year, I wanted to mention to him how much I appreciated that he would make you know a young kid feel like his question was valid. But uh, you know, we went to the show this year, and you take pictures with Stan. And they just shuffled you in and out like cattle. You know, you barely had time to say hello to him before, uh, you know, before you were sent out. So I never did get a chance to tell him that. But uh, looking back on that, I, I thought that was cool of him. It, it's kind of funny too because they did that at Dragon Con a couple of years ago, and uh, a good buddy of mine, Garrett, who I think listens to the show, had his picture taken with Stan, and he said, you know, that that his handlers were like Stan's had a cold. You know, try not to get too close to him. You know, blah, 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 blah. Don't touch him. Don't cough on him. He's ancient and will die. Um, <laughs> so, you know, everyone was really kind of, you know, accommodating to this. And then, like, ten minutes later, uh, my, uh, Garrett was standing outside, and out comes Stan Lee slapping people on the back, shaking people's hands. <laughs> uh, you know, I, every experience I've ever had where I've seen him listen to him talk in any way or he always seems like the most accommodating guy ever even even you know for that couple of seconds we saw him this year i mean the man's 89 years old yeah and I was about you know to say. he he's still you know we walked up we said hello he you know he said hello he put his arm around my son he, we took the picture uh, you know i still thought it was very cool yeah i i should probably save up for it next time because frankly He's probably not going to be around much longer. As, as sad as that is to say, that was yeah. exactly my reasoning. When I saw that this show was on, we were, there were actually two two shows, one this one and one in Jersey, uh, you know, around the same time. And I, I was, you know, I was only going to be able to go to one of them. And when I saw the Stan Lee thing, I said, you know, how many more chances am I going to have to take a picture with Stan Lee? So, yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, it's it's since I was more of a DC guy, I always had like this, this respect for Stan Lee. But the more I'm reading silver age Marvel nowadays, the more I'm like, wow, this, this guy, this, this guy revolutionized an industry and turned a company Marvel that was chasing trends into a trendsetter. Yeah, exactly. It's, It's really interesting to watch in comics and it's hard to admit this, but you know, you, you watch what Marvel does, and then a couple years later, DC does kind of the similar thing. And it and I hate saying that, and I'm not saying that the stories DC does because they've decided that are some way inferior. But you know, for the longest time, Marvel was was king, and is still pretty much king. And I think they've proven that time and again over the last twelve years with putting out. You know, you can. You can say bad things about Elektra and Ghost Rider and Daredevil and all that as films, and, you know, you'll have some legitimate points there, but they have had far more successes than failures, so. Especially of late. But this was a fun book to read. I I have a digital copy, Mm -hmm. uh, thanks to that DVD that they released. It was a Silver Surfer and the Fantastic Four DVD. Yep, Uh, I have that. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I was very surprised to see Jack Kirby art. Well, a lot of that series was John Buscema. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I think most of it was. 
Uh, yeah, I have that. I have basically that entire series. Plus, I have the DVD. Plus, I have the Masterwork. So that one I can go multiple forms on. You but, triple uh, dipped. Yeah, you know that, that's that's how they get you. Oh, definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that as somebody in judgment. I'm saying that as somebody who does the same <laughs> thing. I have six different editions of the Man of Steel trade. Who am I to talk? <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, I don't know. It's it's just a strange thing. And then they do try and do it to you on the DVDs, too. Yeah, but now those DVDs are like, really? You ever try to find one on eBay? They go for hundreds of dollars now, because they're out of print, basically. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I got almost all of them when they were, you know, somewhat reasonably priced, and uh, you know that's that's when I realized I can go digital and I don't need to have hard copies of things. Yeah, but this was a really a really fun story, and it's it's kind of interesting that I enjoyed it because normally I'm not a cosmic guy and I'm not an Inhumans guy, uh, and that's this story is lousy with both, uh, quote unquote lousy. Not yes, no, I get what quality, you're saying, but. Um, but it was a lot of fun in that last page. I was just like, wait a second, where does this story go? Now, they did, and I couldn't tell you what happened in the story, but they did address finishing this story. I think it's the first two or three issues of the series Web Spinners. So okay. somehow they put, they put Spider-Man into it, and I know that they tied it in with the Psycho Man somehow, and that basically that's what made the surfer go kind of crazy at the end okay but i don't i couldn't tell you anything about the story whether it was you know well well thought out well written i don't believe it was well drawn but i'm not even sure about that i have issues but i i have no web spinners was of varying quality so you're probably right about that well i mean i think that was just kind of a uh a series that they put together to get rid of some of their stock stories that they had laying around yeah, and it was also, you know, the time of the great reboot of Spider-Man in 98. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, untold tales of Spider-Man with somewhat questionable artwork. I always kind of looked at it as like the Legends of the Dark Knight for Spider-Man. Right. Where you can where you can tell these stories of, you know, in different time periods and and still kind of get away with it without having to really factor into what's going on in the Marvel universe now. Or yeah. then, I guess. And, and and I remember he, like when they first talked about it, hearing, oh, they're going to finally address that story. And I, I thought, that's great. I want to read that. And I have no memory of actually reading it. <laughs> so what else you got on this one? Uh, that's like all I got. Okay. <laughs> it's, I just thought it was a good story. I enjoyed it. I, I liked The Surfer. And I thought it was a good chance for me to give my Stan Lee story. Beyond that, I don't have a lot. No, I, it's just I, I always kind of feel bad because it's like there there's – couple things in superhero comics that i've never really glommed on to um fully and that you know like and especially with marvel you know the cosmic stuff outside of reading the very excellent annihilation the original annihilation series of miniseries and then the actual ongoing which was just excellent uh and that i really dug i just never have gotten into those characters and i've I guess I have to read more Fantastic Four, and maybe if I read more early Fantastic Four, I'll like the Inhumans more. But I always looked at the Inhumans as like, oh, the Inhumans. Well, that's kind of nice that they're there. Glad that they uh, glad that they got to come out and play. Um, anything else going on, guys? 
See now, it, it all. I guess it all depends on your frame of reference. See, exactly. I always, I always liked the Inhumans, and that was because early on when I was collecting, that's when they came out with the Inhuman series drawn by George Perez. So, okay. you know, that was enough to hook me on to them as characters. Uh, but I would recommend if you have that DVD, I would recommend that you that you read the uh, the original run of the Surfer. It's only eighteen issues, although. For reasons that I don't know, they did it as a double-sized series. Uh, I think it was issues 1 through 13 or so were those double-sized. You know, they were 25 cents at the time instead of 15. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were doing, like in the back, they would have Tales of the Watcher, which were really, you know, kind of like the Twilight Twilight Zone type stories. Uh, But the actual series itself was kind of revolutionary at the time because it was kind of embracing the college age crowd and mm-hmm. and and putting out you know slightly more adult stories than they were doing otherwise and there's nothing racy about them at all they're just you know a little bit more sophisticated in the concepts you know, that's when they introduced the character of Mephisto into the Marvel universe uh just you know pretty pretty well written stuff you know if you can allow for the uh you know for the methods of the time yeah i mean it it always struck me as stuff that would be kind of interesting if i finally read it but it was not something i would ever kind of like seek out Mm -hmm. uh, you know too hard but having said that having read this you know it's just like well maybe i want to check out a little more silver surfer because i've always i've always like kind of liked the character even though i i don't know a whole lot about him uh and maybe that's why I could enjoy the second Fantastic Four film a little more than some other people uh, who were really disappointed with how everything in, in, of, of Silver Surfer and Galactus was handled in that. I, I think what always kind of struck me about those characters, though, is that as awesome as Galactus is, and I've you know I really liked how Byrne played with the character in his FF run. Um, I uh, I just always it's just like okay he eats planets and every once in a while he's gonna come to Earth and it's like I'm gonna eat you. <laughs> Reed Richards gonna be like no I got this ultimate nullifier it's like well I'll okay but I'm gonna eat you so it's oversimplifying <laughs> yeah. it but still. oh it definitely is <laughs> no but I, I I mean I enjoy that character uh and, and just the concept of him being kind of this greater force and all of that. But when you tie that into the fact that he still felt the need to have a big G on his belt, uh, you know, you got to wonder what, you know, where that fashion sense came from, uh, which he did eventually get rid of that. Well, what we don't know is that in the previous universe that Galactus sur- survived, that was like what you did. So. <laughs> well, he had the big G, and uh, when Apocalypse first came around, he had a big A on his belt, too. So I guess that yeah. was just things you did. But uh, you don't really need a lot of Surfer background for the original, you know, volume one of the Surfer series. Um, You know, there's the initial appearance of Galactus, that he came as the Herald and he rebelled against him. Then there's the next arc where Doom stole his power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I think there's just one other other arc where... uh, they go into the microverse 
And I'm not sure he had any other appearances before the Surface series started. I'm trying to think. He he did appear in an issue of Tales to Astonish, like around 98, but I think that may be after the Surface series was out. Well, the the one Surfer, the first Surfer story that I ever really read was Incredible Hulk number 250, I believe it was. Where during the course of the story and fighting the Hulk, the Surfer absorbs the gamma radiation from Bruce Banner and is able to break free the you know the bonds of of the Earth and, and is able to fly in the cosmos once more. But it's going to kill Bruce Banner, so he ultimately makes the decision to return and give Bruce his curse back so he can survive the fall. And I always thought, wow, that's kind of a neat character. Um, but still, just but never in that. That's a neat character. I need to check out more of that. More mm-hmm. of, that's a neat character. Ooh, lunch. So, <laughs> well, the first issue of the Surface series, you know, really brings you back though, because it goes to the origin of the character, which hadn't been revealed up until that time. And then, when the series was canceled, I think, I mean, I, I'm crediting Stan Lee for something that I don't know if it's a fact, because I'm just surmising. But uh, his character was used sparingly in the early to mid '70s, and we're actually even into the '80s. Uh, until he ended up having his own series again. He he really wasn't a character that popped up too much. And I always got the feeling that Stan Lee didn't want people just, you know, overusing him. Uh, yeah, I, it, it always seemed like if somebody was really going to write him, it was going to be Stan. Um, mm-hmm. I, I guess Roy Thomas was able to get around that with the Defenders. And that was uh, Steve Englehart used him a little in there as well. Mm-hmm. But so. but back then, I remember, you know, when, when he had an appearance, it was kind of like a, you know, a, a mini event because it didn't happen that often. But I think we got an episode. Sounds like it to me. I think we're good. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 